Uh, would you turn to the third chapter of James? Uh, again, James uh, discontinues his preaching and commences to meddle. Uh, steps uh, all over our toes, talking about something that uh, we're all concerned about, and that is our our mouth, our tongue, our tendency to say the wrong things, to hurt and uh, injure others with uh, with this little little member in our body. Uh, Warren Wiersbe tells the tale about the woman in his church. She could just as well have been a man, but in this case it was a woman who was a notorious gossip and uh, finally became convicted of her, uh, of her sin and came to Dr. Wiersbe and, and said, I, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. And he looked around the room and he said, uh, Ma'am, I don't think we have one large enough. And perhaps that's what uh, you feel about your tongue. If so, there's help on the way. This, this bit of counsel in chapter 3 is by far the most helpful information I've ever read on controlling the tongue. Uh, James begins in verse 1 with a command, Let not many of you become teachers. Literally, stop becoming teachers. That's the, uh, the grammatical form of the phrase. Stop becoming teachers. Knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a a perfect or mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Uh, The problem then is now is that people were clamoring for the teaching office. Uh, It is, uh, in many people's eyes, a very prestigious position. it's a very heady sort of thing. It, that I and the staff get to stand up here on Sunday morning and, and talk to seven or 800 people. That sort of thing goes to your head. Uh, I get to talk, and, and you have to listen. And uh, sometimes you get through before I get through talking, but that's all right. At least you have to, you have to sit there, and, and your mind may be elsewhere, but your body has to stay. And, and that's, uh, it's nice to have that sort of commanding position in the church and be able to, to instruct and teach others. We know from the, the concept that we have of the body of Christ that's elsewhere developed in the New Testament that the teaching gift is no more essential than any other gift in the body. It's just one of many gifts, all of which are vital to a healthy, functioning body. But there's something about, uh, about teaching that draws people's attention, and people are inclined to clamor for that office, and that's why James says, stop doing that. Don't many of you seek to be teachers? Because, as he says, those who teach receive a, a greater judgment, a greater uh, condemnation. That's scary when you think about it. Uh, now, we need to understand what, what James is talking about here when, when he, uh, he talks about judgment. He's not referring to any final and ultimate judgment because those of us that know Christ, whose hearts have been regenerated, are, are, are saved, will endure to the end. He's talking rather about the accounting that all of us have to give one of these days uh, before our Heavenly Father. Uh, One of these days, as Paul puts it, we're going to have to answer for the things done in our body and with our body. 
Have we faithfully discharged the responsibilities that are given to us? And it's not a judgment. Uh, it's not a, a judgment which condemns us, but nevertheless, it's an accounting. I, some of you may have had fathers like that. I, I did. I, he would give me a task to do when he went off to work, and then he would come home at night to see if I did it. And I can still remember having to go into his office, his big, great big desk and walls lined with books, and, and stand before, before that desk and, and tell him if I had done what he asked me to do. And he was always kindly. I can never remember my father raising his voice, but once in my whole life. But I was, I was scared to death because I, uh, I knew that he expected me to, to follow through. Now, it's that sort of accounting that James is talking about. One of these days, we're going to have to stand before our, our Father, our Heavenly Father, and, and answer up, give an accounting. And the problem, as James puts it, is that teachers are more likely to sin because it's the very area with which they minister that they are most inclined to sin. James says, we all sin. Everybody sins. We know that. And we particularly sin with our tongue. If someone is able, to, uh, is able to control his or her tongue, then that's a mature person. He can master every other part of his, of his life. And teachers, of course, use words. Uh, to use Augustine's apt expression, we're vendors of words. We live by using words. Every teacher I know it tends to be a kind of a verbal person. He knows all kinds of words. I know words I don't even know the meaning for. And uh, we use a lot of words. And when you multiply words, you multiply opportunities to, uh, to sin. And James says, that's, that's the problem. Your tongue tips you off and tips others off to, to where you are. Your tongue tattles on you. James says, if you can control your, your tongue, you can control the rest of your life. And, and thinking reasonably, if, if you're not in control... Of the rest of your life, your tongue's going to tell on you. We've all had to go in uh, for a checkup with a doctor when we're not feeling good. What, what's the first thing a doctor says to you when, you when you go into his office? He says, stick out your tongue. And I don't know what they look for. <laughs> Tongue's got to be an all-time ugly organ to begin with, but he, pulls that thing out and looks at it and looks at the fuzz on the tongue and he says, man, you are sick. <laughs> go home, go to bed. And that's what, that's what James says. He says, you want to know how you're doing spiritually? Stick out your tongue, let me see, and then we'll, we'll tell you how you're doing. And the problem is that those who, who teach are always, uh, always using words. They're working their mouth and tongue and and, and we're all inclined to sin in that area, and that's why James says it, it's a very responsible position. Don't clamor for that, uh, for that job. Now, from this point, he turns to talk in general about the tongue. The first two verses have special application to teachers, but the rest of it has application for all of us, whether we teach or not. In verses 3 through 6, he, he stresses the, the great importance of the tongue which we all know. He says in verse 3, If we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. 
Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, or it might be better translated, the unrighteous world. The tongue is set among our members. It defiles the the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. It's quite an indictment. He, uh, He says, in effect, that little things mean a lot. The, the, the substance of his argument uh, is in verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. He's not talking about bragging, the tongue bragging, but rather accomplishment. The, the tongue is small, and yet it, it does great things. And we know that. It can ruin marriages. It can ruin reputations. It can destroy ministries. Little things do mean a lot. I had a friend who was riding his motorcycle down a freeway in Southern California one time. and He didn't have a helmet on or a visor, and a bug flew in his mouth. And he was so uh, nonplussed that he lost control of his bike and ran into a concrete uh, abutment, bridge abutment. And fortunately, he survived, although he spent the next uh, five or six months in traction. But as he put it when he got out of the hospital, little things can have a great impact on you. (laughs) And that's what James is saying. Little things are very impactive, and and, and the tongue is one of them. It's just a small thing, but man, what damage it can do. How many lives have been destroyed by, uh, by a careless word? You know the... The poster we used to see in the Second World War, loose lips sink ships. That sort of thing goes on all the time. Just a a slip of the tongue, an inadvertent word, and a a reputation is ruined, a marriage is destroyed, someone's lifelong work goes down down the drain. James uses three illustrations of this principle. The first is that of a bridle in a horse's mouth. We put the bit into the horse, actually the bridle doesn't go in his mouth, the bit does. We put the bit in horses' mouths so that they may obey us. And we give direction to their entire bodies. Uh, I learned this uh, principle in a negative way a couple of summers ago when Brian and I were helping a friend in his uh, ranch back in the back country. And uh, we were hauling stuff in uh, into the ranch from the place where you you can drive a certain distance, then you have to have to go by wagon about two more miles into where the ranch buildings are. And we were coming out in order to get some beds and some other other equipment that someone had brought up uh, up the road. And we were about a mile from from the ranch and uh, found that a tree had fallen across the road. We couldn't get through it; it wedged between a couple of other trees and it was too far to walk all the way back to get the chainsaw and so we decided we'd just take the wagon back but the problem was it was a little narrow road it was just a little bit wider than this platform I'm on and it, it ran right through the middle of a uh, 
lodgepole pine patch, and you couldn't turn around. So we unhitched the mules and took them around on the other side of the wagon, and then we, by hand, turned the wagon around and hitched them back up again. And, and Ralph uh, slapped the reins, and he said, Oh, mules! And the problem was he had forgotten to snap the, uh, the lines onto the bridle. And at the end of the line flipped up and hit the mule in the face, and they both started running. And I'll tell you, if, if you have never ridden on a springless wagon when two mules are running as fast as they can run down through a little narrow road, you couldn't jump out. You would have been decapitated if you did. I'll tell you, that was a thrill. <laughs> Those mules ran all the way back to the ranch house, just as hard as they could run. And Ralph was yelling, Whoa! mules and every time he'd yell the mules just run faster and Brian and I were just hanging on for dear life and I, I learned a very important lesson you, know, you, you can't control mules very well unless you have that bridle hooked up but you put that, that little bit in their mouth and you haul back on the, on the lines and they stop that's what James is saying little things mean a lot same thing is true of, uh, of a ship uh, ships were fairly large in those days, 150 to 200 feet long, some of them. And then you take a little rudder, and you can control it. And uh, his third illustration is that of fire. Um, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. We've all seen that sort of thing. You leave an unguarded campfire, and the wind comes up, and it ignites uh, the leaves around the, around the fire, and eventually you destroy thousands and thousands of acres of valuable timber. And it all begins with a, with a small fire. And that's exactly what happens. And we drop a rumor, we tell a story to somebody else that we've heard about someone else, and it, and it moves like wildfire through, through the community until a person's reputation is ruined. I worked on uh, college campuses back in the years when Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and Timothy Leary, who's still with us, by the way, and others were uh, shouting people power and, and advocating drug use, and, and they just—they almost destroyed a whole generation of students. I listened to them. I know how inflammatory they are, and the enormous impact that they can have upon others. And James says that's that's the way the tongue is—dreadfully effective. Terribly impactive, he says. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. That's an interesting phrase. As I said, literally, it's the unrighteous world among us. The tongue is the embodiment of the world. Uh, the world is a community of flesh-governed individuals, that is, uh, people, independent people, people who are independent from God. When the New Testament talks about the world, generally it's not talking about the world of created things. It's talking about an attitude that pervades the world that uh, essentially says, I can do without God. And that's what leads to all sorts of, of attitudes and activities that are anti-God and contrary to the purposes of God and detrimental to the expansion of the kingdom of God. Uh, James is going to elaborate on this throughout the book. The world is at enmity with God, he says. And what James says is that the world sets up in our lives and it expresses itself through the tongue. Every attitude and action that's contrary to God's good purposes for the human race are embodied in, in the tongue. Uh, I think James was thinking about Jesus' words in Matthew 15. Will you turn with me there? 
Matthew 15:10. And he called to himself the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This is what defiles the man. Now, Jesus used a different word for defile than James does, but I think he has the same idea in mind. Uh, earlier, he had, with, with one statement, swept aside all of the dietary laws. And now he elaborates the dietary laws of the Jews, and now he elaborates. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the man, it's what comes out. A little parable, which Peter asked to be explained in verse 15. And Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? The you is plural. He was talking to all the apostles. Don't you understand yet? That everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and, and is eliminated so that foods don't defile us. I mean, some food may be unhealthy, but... But food in and of itself has no effect upon us spiritually. It just passes through the body, he says. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, evil designs and plans, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. Interesting, isn't it, that he includes slander with that list of of more serious and heinous uh, crimes against society. Envy, pride, foolishness, these are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile the man. It's what comes out, see? It's what comes out. In other words, what James is saying, if, if you turn back to James again, is that the tongue tells us how worldly we are. We say, I'm not worldly? I don't get drunk. I don't run around on my wife. I'm not a womanizer. Uh, I don't cheat on my income tax. I'm not worldly. But James says if we're slandering, speaking evil of other people, if we're gossiping, if we're bearing false witness, if we use our tongues to cut and rip and slice into other people, then we're worldly, that's what he says. The, The tongue, again, tells on us. Reveals how it reveals the state of, of the heart. He says that the, uh, the tongue defiles the entire body, uh, that is, it's intensive in, in its effects, it, it affects us totally, and it's also extensive. It sets on fire the course of our life from beginning to end. There's nothing quite as sad as a, as a mean old man. We all know them, irascible, sharp-tongued, ugly old men. Well, how'd they get that way? Well, you know, after a while, the heart begins to reveal itself. And we begin to show ourselves for, for what we are. So that the tongue not only affects us where we are right now, it's going to affect us throughout the course of, of our life. And then finally, he says this interesting thing, that it's set on fire by hell. And if you have a New American Standard and look in the margin, you'll see that it's the word Gehenna, which is an unusual word. It's only used in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for hell. It's Jesus' word for hell, basically. Uh, Gehenna was a, was a, a geographical location. Uh, in Aramaic, it was Gehenna, 
the Valley of Hinnom. And Hinnom was a family of people who lived in this valley. It was just to the southwest of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the city of Jerusalem and you stand on the Temple Mount and you look to the south, off to the right, there's a, it's not as deep now as it used to be, but there's a canyon, a valley off to the right. That's the Valley of Hinnom. And uh, it was a place where during the reigns of, of King Ahaz and Manasseh, they had sacrificed children to Moloch. When Josiah came to the throne, he, he slaughtered the false prophets and cast their bones into, the, into that area, and he broke down the altars and destroyed the whole thing and desecrated the site so that it could never be used for human habitation again, and so they made a garbage dump out of it. It's actually what happened. During the time of Jesus and on into the first, uh, well, until they destroyed the temple in 70 AD, they, that was their garbage dump. All the, the garbage that was uh, thrown out into the streets, which is what they do in these eastern cities, was gathered up and tossed over the walls and it rolled down into the, into the valley. And at some point early in, the, in history, it caught on fire and it just smoldered and burned. And it smelled bad. It smelled terrible. And it became, in Jesus' day, a symbol for hell. A kind of cosmic garbage dump. A place of wasted lives, so to speak. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that James would use this, this term. Now, James believes in a literal hell, but he identifies it with this uh, garbage dump. It gives us a very vivid picture of the tongue. You want to know what drives the tongue, he says? It's, it's, it's the garbage dump. That's where all the garbage comes from. Now, uh, he doesn't leave us there. He goes on to give us an even more sinister, uh, to describe an even more sinister aspect of the tongue, verses 7 and 8. Not only does it have great importance, it's incorrigible. No man or woman can tame the tongue. The uh, uh, word that's translated one in verse 8 in, in, in the text is literally man. Every species of birth, uh, beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. I suppose that's literally true. Every type of animal in, in some form or, the, or, or another has been tamed or hunted or domesticated or used in some way by, by man. It can be controlled. It can be kept in its place. But not the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly venom. Literally, the word for poison here is the word for, a snake, for snake venom. It's a restless evil, venomous. It's like a wild animal. It's like a vicious snake, coiled and ready to strike, out to hurt and maim and destroy and kill. What a, what a vivid picture of, of the tongue. Uh, a number of years ago, our family took a trip through safari land near San Diego. Some of you have been through there. They have a, a large uh, park full of wild animals, and you can drive through it. And there are lions and tigers and leopards and all kinds of wild beasts strolling through the park. And uh, when you go through the doors, through the gates, the rangers tell you, be sure to roll your windows up, and they won't let people in convertibles in. And uh, we had a, a, a bunch of stuff on the luggage rack of our, of our wagon, with a canvas cover over it. And when we drove in, the man said, I don't think you better go in with that, with that uh, 
gear on top of your car. And I said, oh, I, I think it's all right. And he said, well, I really don't, but it's your gear. So we, uh, we went on in, and, and here were all these uh, nice uh, lions and tigers strolling around, and it looked like you could get out and pat them on the head, and they just looked like nice uh, uh, domesticated uh, pussy cats, large variety uh, house cats. Until we happened to pass under a tree, and a leopard jumped right on top of our car, splat, right on the top, and proceeded to tear into that luggage. And he ripped the top off, and I had a pair of red and white striped pants, my favorite pants. If you, if you can believe it, I used to wear red and white striped pants. That's, that's what California will do to you. And he ripped into those things and pulled those pants out. And, I, and the ranger, I, I think the ranger was scared. He thought he had eaten me or something. Here he was with the pants left. And, and he, he came over in his Jeep and he got his cattle prod out and he went to work on the leopard and he growled and snarled and, and hooked his, his claws into the side of the car and finally he got that thing off. And then I realized that is not a tame cat. That is a real live lion and he's out to get you. And me, if I'd stuck my head outside that door. That's what James says. That, that's, that's, the way, that's the way the tongue is. It's, it's looking for somebody to get. We love it. We just love it. You know, the clever put-down. The, the, the supposedly off-the-cuff remark that we've thought about for months. You know, we plan these little attacks on people. How we're going to respond the next time they say so-and-so. Carol and I were wandering through antique stores yesterday and picked up a book on Winston Churchill, and it reminded me of a... He referred to Bessie Braddock in the book, and it reminded me of the fact that he and... that, that Churchill and Braddock had had a running verbal battle for years, and uh, uh, she encountered him at a party one time, and he was drunk. And she said, Winston... She got all over him and reproved him, said, Winston, you're drunk. And he looked at her, and he said, Bessie... In the morning, I'll be sober, but you'll still be ugly. <laughs> and we love that kind of stuff, you know. We just love it. And we, we, we practice it, you know. We hear the story about the uh, big game hunter that was on safari, and, and he was attacked by a lion, and he threw up his shotgun, and he missed, but, but the lion miscalculated and jumped right over his head, and... And he, he scurried into his Jeep and got away. And the next day he thought, well, I better practice. So he was out in the back practicing, drawing, and shooting, and heard all this racket in the brush nearby. And he parted the brush and looked, and there was the lion practicing short leaps. <laughs> <clears throat> and that's what we do, see. Going to get him next time. Or he says it's like a, like a snake out to get you, like a venomous snake. I... I was raised in the in the uh, cedar breaks of north central Texas, and and we have diamondback rattlers there that are that are sure enough diamondback. I mean, they are big. They told me they're they're snakes in in Idaho. You, you haven't seen a snake until you see a a Texas diamondback rattler. Those things are six to eight feet long, and they have a head about the size of your fist, and those are big snakes. And when I was a kid growing up, I learned you don't step over logs without looking. You don't walk through brush without looking. You don't go into the barn without checking everything out because they will get you. And uh, that's what James says. Tongue is like that. We, we just love to use it that way. 
says it's a it's a restless evil, and and the, and the terrible thing is that it cannot be controlled. No man, he says, can control the the tongue. Then uh, finally, in in verses nine through twelve, he describes for us the the incongruity of a double-minded tongue. There's something very strange about the tongue. With it, he says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men uh, who have been made in the likeness of God. Isn't that odd? We uh, respond with reverence to the Master, and then we, uh, we denigrate his, his masterpiece. We, we love the Creator, but we curse his, his creation. James, isn't that odd? And on one side of our mouth we can we can praise God, and on another side of our mouth we can put down a human being who is one of God's most prized possessions, his most important product. Isn't that strange? From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Another one of James' masterpieces of understatement. It shouldn't be this way. Something's wrong. It's contrary to nature, he says. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Now, James has a way of making statements and, and, and permitting us to draw our own inferences. He doesn't always explain everything. And that's what he's doing here. He says, now, wait a minute. Uh, if you were to go to a, a, a fountain and uh, one moment it's putting out fresh water and the next moment it's putting out salt water, what would you think? Well, there must be two sources of activity. That's what you'd think. That there's a, there's a pocket of salt water back there at, at one point from which this flow originates and then there's a pocket of sweet water. They're, that's the only explanation you can come up with. And I think that's what James is saying. What the tongue does is realize the source of control in our life. The real issue is, who has our heart? Okay. If our hearts are submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord, then our tongues will express the reality of that relationship. If we are not, then it expresses the fact that we are not subject to his lordship. As Jesus put it in Matthew 12, the good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. The evil man out of the evil treasure of the heart brings forth evil things. Where does this cursing come from? Well, it comes from bitterness and resentment inside. The reason we lash out at people is because we hate them in our hearts. Where do all these clever cutting comments come from? Well, they come from inside. And when James says you can't control the tongue, he means it. You can't control the tongue by trying to control the tongue. The best way to control the tongue is to not try to control, control the tongue at all. It is to control the source from which the tongue uh, operates. If Christ is Lord, if we're subject to his word, if we're dealing with our bitterness and our resentment and the hatred and the the ugliness in the inner man, then the tongue will express that. That's all. The tongue simply tells, it reveals what's there. That's why James says earlier, if you can control your tongue, you're a mature man. He doesn't mean that you're able to, to, 
to keep a tight rein on your tongue, it just means that you're a mature man or woman, and, and the tongue is simply expressing what's there, you see. Now, let me digress here just for a moment, then I'll come back to this, this main idea. It, it always amazes me with what severity Scripture uh, deals with the problem of the tongue and on the other side of the picture how cavalier how cavalier our attitudes are toward the tongue we just don't see it as a very serious thing but scripture does wrongful use of the tongue according to James according to Jesus according to Paul and all the other writers of scripture is a serious thing In Psalm 15, the psalmist says, Who can ascend to God's holy hill? Who has the right to to stand before God with a a good conscience? He said, Well, that's someone who doesn't defame his brother. Isn't that interesting? Look, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 6. Another illustration of this principle. Do you not know, I'm reading verse 9 now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Now get this list, will you? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Includes in that list of what we would consider very serious sins, um, a sin of the tongue. A reviler is just someone who puts somebody else down. That's all. And he says those who practice those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that those who do those things periodically, who fall into those sins, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about a lifestyle. If we have a lifestyle of being an adulterer, if we can go on uh, in unfaithfulness to our wives, wife, over and over and over again without any sense of remorse or any efforts to try to straighten our life out, then we should uh, sincerely question our salvation because no, no one who belongs in God's kingdom can go on living that way without guilt and without sorrow and without remorse and attempts to, to set things right. And Paul says, if, if we are gossips, the same thing can be said. If we have an uncontrolled tongue and we're talking about people behind their back and, and causing grief in the church in that way, then we ought to seriously question our salvation. It is a very serious thing. Paul says you can't bring those things into the house of God. You can't call yourself a Christian and, uh, and be a gossip. Uh, it was payday last two weeks ago, and Carolyn brought home T-bone steaks. We rarely have T-bone steaks, but uh, she uh, was in an expansive mood, and uh, she brought home these great steaks. And we uh, barbecued them, and then picked every, you know, all the meat we could off the bones, and then threw the bones to our dog, who loves T-bone steak bones. And uh, she was very happy gnawing on her bones outside until it began to get dark. 
And uh, then she wanted to come inside the house. And she's a very sneaky dog. Uh, she comes to the door and scratches and looks pitiful. And, and we open the door, and then she, she has a, do- a bone planted about a foot away where I can't see it. And she runs over and gets the bone, and then she runs between my legs into the house. And I grabbed her by the scruff of her neck as she started through and put her back out. And I said, you can't bring your bone in the house. And she looked so hurt, I thought I owed her a further explanation. So I said, look, that is a dirty, smelly old bone. You, you know, if, if you want to chew on your bone, you stay out there, but you don't bring a ho- dog bone in the house, okay? And then basically, that's what God says to us. If you want to chew on your smelly old bone, you stay out there, but don't bring it in the house of God. Can't do that. And we say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm not an adulterer. And God says, well, your, your problem with gossip is just as smelly and just as evil, and it causes just as much uh, pollution and destruction as, as the sin of fornication or adultery or swindling or being a thief. And, and James also says, you've got to leave it outside. Now, the way you leave it outside is not through reformation of the tongue, you know, controlling that thing. You can't. It's just saying, Lord, clean me up from the inside out. Those that uh, fool around with computers... Uh, have a term, you know, you have garbage in the computer and garbage comes out. And essentially that's what James is saying. If there's garbage in here, evil thoughts, evil designs, evil intents, selfishness, uncrucified uh, flesh, whatever, it's going to come out. And what we need to do is submit ourselves to Christ at the deepest level of our being, submit ourselves to his word, count upon his strength to begin to deal with the bad attitudes the anger, the resentment, the unforgiveness, all of the things that sooner or later begin to show up in our, in our tongue. And if we're dealing with these things and judging them and putting them away by Christ's strength, then the tongue just takes care of itself. We don't have to worry about, about it. I used to um, direct camps for the YMCA down in, in Texas. And uh, I always had a, a director's uh, uh, kind of a talk that I gave to the, to the kids the first uh, 15 or 20 minutes of the day right after breakfast we'd gather around the uh, table kitchen table or the dining room tables and I would tell them a story and uh, I because the camps only ran for a week I only had five stories and I told those things over and over and over again for two summers and they've been forever implanted in my in my brain. One of the stories I used to tell was a story about uh, a Swiss village in which there was a, a famous well that had fresh, clear, cold uh, spring water. And travelers from all over would gather at that village to, uh, to drink from that well. There was a, you know, the well was in the town square and there was a little, little pump there and you could pump on the handle and out would come fresh, clear cold spring water. Well, one day a, a traveler uh, came along and, and he put his tin cup under the pump and he pumped the handle and out came green, greasy, slimy, buggy water. 
And he said, what is this? And he went to the burgermeister and he said, what, what, what's going on? And uh, the city uh, fathers panicked and they called a council meeting and they all got together and they were trying to decide what they would do. And this uh, old Swiss guide was sitting at the back, his lighter hosen and his funny little climbing hat on, and he stood up, took his hat off, and he said, excuse me, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? And they all shouted him down and, and took a vote and decided to paint the pump. So the burgermeister gets on his overalls and he goes down to the hardware store and he buys a bucket of red paint, fire engine red paint, and he goes down uh, to the town square and he gets his paintbrush out and he paints, paints the pump. And uh, then he goes around to the back and uh, handle the paints, uh, handle the pump still wet, so he has to be handle it gingerly and he begins to pump. And, and I'd say to the kids, guess what came out? And they'd say, fresh, clear, spring water. I'd say, no, dirty, green, slimy, smelly, buggy water. And I'd say, oh. So that, I, won't, I won't belabor this thing. It would go on for 15 minutes or so. They'd do all sorts of things, you know. They'd, they'd decide they're going to beautify the environment in which the pump is found, and they would plant flowers and build a wall and whatnot. And this little guy would pop up every time they'd come up with one of these suggestions and say, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? And after they beautified the environment, they'd pump it and then say, what do you suppose came out? And the kids would say, dirty, green, greasy, buggy water. And then they, you know, they got the state church pastor to come down and lay hands on the pump and pray for it. All sorts of things went on until finally this little... little uh, this little guy won the day. He said, look, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? And they said, why didn't you tell us that before? And the burgermeister gets on his coveralls and he goes down. And he finds out that sure enough, the well is polluted. So he gets his bucket and, and the shovel and he, and he gets all the dirt and stuff that's fallen into the well over the years. And he scrubs the sides and the floor and the fresh water begins to flow in. And he climbs out and he pumps. And I'd say, what do you suppose came out? There's always some kid that would say, green, greasy, buggy water. I'd say, no, 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 no. Fresh, clear spring water. Because how can something clean come from something that's unclean? That's all James is saying. If we want to control our tongue, then we have to permit the Spirit of God to purify us from the inside out. It's out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, that the mouth speaks. So that's where we begin. Begin with the heart. Let's pray. Be good to take this this moment to recommit your your heart to the Lord. All of us this past week, myself included, have said harsh and unloving things to people and regretted it afterward and needed to set things right. And we need to confess that as as the sin that it is. Thank God for his forgiveness. And and submit ourselves again his lordship ask him to control our hearts to put his finger on uh, areas of our life where we've resisted him and ask him to purify us from the inside out would you do that father we thank you for loving us even though we uh, embarrass ourselves and others and do all sorts of unseemly things with our words, create havoc and 
leave behind us a trail of, of devastation and, and ruin. How much we need help, Lord. How much we need a Lord. We thank you for your, your great love for us, your forgiving heart, your understanding heart, since you were one of us. And, and you know the, with what difficulty we try to suppress our, our words. And we, uh, we thank you that uh, you give us the, a fresh start every moment, a new beginning, and strength to go on. We ask that you would deal with the issues in our life, lives that we've not submitted to your lordship, that you would give us the strength to judge and put away the, the evil attitudes that cause the harsh and hard words. And we thank you that you are at work, both to will and to do of your good, good pleasure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.